The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Moore, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emmanuelmora.com. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1, this is what the Holy Spirit writes uh, through Paul. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer must therefore be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the judgment, or incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. Let's pray. Father, uh, I ask that in these words here uh, about church leadership that we would not lose focus of the fact that not only are you pointing towards leadership, but you're pointing at us as well. Lord, help us all to be uh, model Christians by which these characteristics are true of all of us, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Well, October 5th is the 10-year anniversary of a man who changed the world. Uh, so much so that his, without his prophetic vision for technology and what our world would look like today, you and I wouldn't be able to stream or download digital music. Uh, further, uh, none of us would uh, be watching Netflix on our tablets or on anything like that because they, they simply wouldn't have existed. Uh, speaking of movies, it was this man's vision that single-handedly saved Disney. We wouldn't have Lightning McQueen and Mater if it wasn't for him. We wouldn't have uh, Mike Lewazowski and, uh, and Sully. Uh, we certainly wouldn't have Buzz and Woody without this individual. Uh, and it was because of this man that every single one of us has this digital multimedia device, either in our pockets or in our purses. I'm, of course, talking about Steve Jobs, who was the founder and CEO of the Apple computer company. Uh, it's hard to imagine what life would be like right now had Steve Jobs never uh, gotten into uh, the, uh, the Apple uh, business or the computer business and thought of such amazing things. But if you look at his success and his impact on, his world, on, the, on this world, you would think that he was just this amazing leader, that he was a guy that could lead people and inspire them and, and get them to do the impossible in technology. But you would be surprised to know that Steve Jobs was not a good leader. Steve Jobs was the kind of person that you and I would never want to have as our boss. He was pushy. He had the most gifted, talented, and creative people in the world working for him. But unless you were able to deliver in exactly the time span and in the very manner in which uh, he would uh, require you to have, he would consider you worthless. In fact, if you were not able to keep up with his pace, if you were not able to do the kinds of impossible things that he was asking you to do, he would make sure that everyone in your department knew that you were stupid 
useless and incompetent. He would not be shy about making that public. So Steve Jobs did not produce our future because of his ability to lead. He produced a future because of his ability to intimidate his employees. And though none of us would ever choose to have a boss like Steve Jobs, most of our culture would say that he was a great leader. Because when it comes to leadership in our culture, we typically tend to think that the end justifies the means. And when it comes to leadership within the church, Jesus is not looking for people who can simply get the job done and who can come and get results. He is not looking for leaders who have competency so much as he is looking for leaders who have character qualities. In our passage today, the Holy Spirit writes through the pen of the Apostle Paul to instruct the churches to be adamant about the kind of men that they appoint to lead the church of Jesus Christ. And how the church is led is of critical importance. It is responsible for people knowing Christ, growing Christ, and proclaiming Christ. And so today we're going to look at four qualities that God is looking for with people who ought to be elders, or another word for that is overseers, of the church. And as, as a church, we need to come to this text with a little bit of humility. Because the way that Paul tells churches to structure their church is not currently how we are set up. We are not set up currently with a board of elders, but rather something else. And so when we look at this text, uh, and as the board is looking forward to possibly introducing a leadership change in our church, we do so knowing that this text here, it's not too early to look for the kind of men that God would want to lead our church. And in this text, we have four characteristics. And the first is that we need to appoint leaders who display godly character. We need, to dis- we need to appoint leaders that display godly character. You know, we don't often look at the correlation between a, a leader's attitude and, uh, and uh, ethos of how he goes about life and the direction that the organization that follows him uh, goes. But any organization, whether it be a 501c3 with only five employees part of it, or whether it be a Fortune 500 company that has thousands of people working for it. The person or people that are on the board and their leadership style impacts the culture of that particular organization. It will always go as a reflection of the leadership. And when it comes to church leadership, character is everything. And Paul doesn't beat around the bush here. Look in verse 1. He says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he he desires a noble work. And this is an incredibly important statement because oftentimes what happens in church life is that the ones that are most qualified to step up for leadership are the ones that don't want to. They are scared of stepping up. This is especially true if the church has had public problems. 
But Paul interjects and says, no, no, no. Church leadership isn't a bad thing. It's a good thing. And if we can have uh, the right people in the right positions, God can really do some amazing things. What he's arguing against here is that there have been some folks uh, at the church of Ephesus that looked upon the leadership that was happening uh, at that church, how the leaders were, were sending out false teaching and leading people astray. And the people that should have been leaders were stepping back and saying, man, if that's leadership, I, I don't want anything to do with that. So the very people who need to be leaders wouldn't be leaders because they saw only a perversion of the leadership. And Paul moves on to the overarching moral character description in verse 2. He says, An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. Uh, reproach is a word that we don't use very often anymore. In fact, I googled it and saw that uh, the use of reproach has just tanked since about the 1800s. But what the word reproach means is that basically uh, it is when someone is censured for an offense. So if you're looking for someone who is above reproach, you're looking for someone who uh, the world has nothing on them. And no one in the church can say anything about their character or their lifestyle by which would hinder the work of Christ in, uh, in the church. And obviously no one is perfect and people can and have made false allegations against elders and pastors and overseers. They're all sort of the same thing. But the, the thrust of this particular verse here is that an elder ought to be living a life of consistent integrity within their, their life. And the rest of verse 2 and verse 3, uh, Paul gives some examples of what living above reproach looks like. Um, the first thing Paul says is that the elder must be the husband of one wife. Now, we're not going to go through every one of these terms in detail simply because there's a lot of them and we don't have time for that. But because of the nature of our culture right now, it, it bears to take a moment and pause and look at this first characteristic here. Um, because there is disagreement on what this particular qualification means, we need to tread lightly on this. And after a lot of research, I would stand in the, the, the sort of the center of the, uh, the, the center of the evangelical view that says, regardless of marriage or divorce status, what this verse is looking for is a faithful man. Okay? One that is faithful to his wife. And this is perhaps the hardest view because it is so encompassing. It is not just talking about um, physical adultery. But also, it is, it is talking about men who are actively engaging, purposely engaging in internet pornography. Or maybe having uh, inappropriate conversations with someone online, or maybe even in person that's not their wife. Or maybe it is even the person that, that makes comments about uh, another gal in church, or out in the world about how she looks, or this and that. That when it says that he is looking for the husband of one wife... It is looking for a man whose heart is completely gripped by and given uh, to his wife if he is married. They don't have to be married to be an elder. The other moral qualities here are somewhat self-explanatory. 
uh, and we could spend all day dissecting them, but let's just briefly look at them. Uh, Verse 2 again. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. This is how it looks. The husband of one wife, sensible, self-controlled, respectable. In other words, he lives a life in which compels respect. Hospitable, which is more than just inviting some folks over to dinner after church. Hospitable being that the overseer elder has a genuine concern about the well-being of other people and wants to take care of them. So they're able to teach, and this is the only aspect in this list by which is a gift. They need to be able to teach. They don't have to necessarily teach Sunday school, but the question is, is are they able to explain doctrinal, doctrinal truths and defend them? Are they able to have a one-on-one with someone to help that individual grow in their faith? Notice further, it says that this is someone that's not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. And Paul backs up these requirements when he writes to Timothy again in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 24 through 25. He says, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. He must be gentle. He must be able to teach. He must be patient, instructing his opponents in gentleness. And we are living in an age in which these qualities are not valued even in the church. Folks, we have men that are disqualifying themselves from church leadership by how they conduct themselves online and social media. Instead of being gentle, they browbeat people who disagree with them. And such qualities are not to be found in in church leadership. As the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to be diligent in, in lifting up men who are sold out for Jesus based on their character. This doesn't mean that we ought to look for, for perfect people. If that were the case, then let's just close our Bibles, shut the doors, and fold this whole church up because we will not find one person who is perfect. Nor do we engage in cancel culture. Cancel culture is about as anti-gospel as it, is, as it gets. What we need to be on the lookout for is leaders who by the power of the Holy Spirit have repented, trusted Jesus, been redeemed, and are living lives publicly and privately that display God's character through their life. So that's the first thing that we need to do. We need to find leaders and appoint leaders who uh, have a consistent moral character. But second, we should appoint leaders who can manage. Can appoint leaders who manage. Imagine with me that you are applying for a job. You are applying for an upper-level management position that has a multi-million dollar budget, and you're going to have thousands of employees under you. And as you're looking at the job description, you're, you're checking the boxes saying, man, I am, I'm fit for that, I'm fit for that. And as you get to the end of it, you're saying, man, this, this job is absolutely perfect for me. And then you look at a clause within the application, and it says, uh, to fulfill uh, your potential appointment, we are going to have some representative from the board that are going to come out and observe your life. They're going to see 
uh, how you interact with your children, how you interact with your wife. They may talk to some of your friends, may talk to your wife. And if you meet those requirements, then this job may be yours. That would be about the weirdest thing in the world for any job to potentially do something like that. Why? Because companies are typically not concerned about your family life. Companies are only concerned with you making the shareholders money. And that's it. And when it comes to the world, there are people that are lined up on the leadership train that are ready and willing to climb the corporate ladder from, the, from sacrificing their family on the altar of success. And that is not church leadership. In the world, they're happy to have success, power, and authority. But in the church, the very litmus test of whether or not someone should be a leader is not how ruthless they are in the advancement of their cause, but rather how they manage their homes. How tender is he with his children? How sacrificial is he in regard to his wife? How is he nurturing the family to know Jesus? Look at how Paul puts it here in verse 4. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. So there are only really two elements in this particular requirement. How he relates to his family and how his children relate to him. He is to be a competent manager of his home. Uh, one in which he leads, feeds, and protects those who are in his charge. When dealing with his kids, is he just angry all the time? Is he abusive in his words? Does he belittle them? Is he discouraging them? Or does he value them and give them dignity that they deserve as image bearers of God? Further, how do his children look at him? Do they respect him? Even when they don't agree with his decisions and rules, are they able to say, I don't agree with that, but man, my dad is a good guy, and I just really love my dad and respect him. Now, the corporate model of leadership is not typically designed after God's plan for the church. The men who are called to lead Christ's church are responsible for things that are vastly more important than getting the shareholders a few extra dollars in their pocket. Paul writes that what uh, he writes what he writes in verse four because of what he writes in verse five. This is the ground level of why they need to be good managers. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? So the church is just a small example of how a person would lead a church. It's a parenthetical comment, but it's an explanatory comment. And I think the application ought to be something that's actually a little unexpected for us. And probably, I should have said this in the last point, and certainly will in the final two, but we ought not to look at these qualifications in a way in which we point them on to other people. But we also ought to point the finger at ourselves and say that these qualifications for leaders are exemplary of what a Christian is supposed to be. How am I on this spectrum? Am I taking care of things at home? 
Am I living a life that is exemplary in public and in private? Certainly, these are written so that churches can be led properly, but these are also benchmarks. Calling, God is calling you to be above reproach in every area of your life. So what is it today that you need to do? These verses are hard. They're not hard to read. Any kid in elementary school could read them, but they're hard to implement, and every one of us has work to do. However, when it comes to the church of God, we ought to be careful that we appoint leaders who are committed and proven to be trustworthy managers in the home. And third, we should appoint leaders who are spiritually mature. The point leaders who are spiritually mature. Now, it's no secret, I, I love football. <laughs> I love every part of it. High school, college, NFL, NFL more than anything, but I love football. I, it's a good thing that we don't have cable. That's by design, because if we had the NFL network, I probably would not come to work. Uh, I would just sit and watch Good Morning Football and, you know, go from there. I already listen to way too many Vikings podcasts than I care to admit. And one of the most exciting aspects of football to me is how the rookies are going to pan out. Rookies are sort of like the freshmen on the team, right? They show up, it's their first year out of college, or maybe they haven't graduated college, but they're good enough to be on the team. And we got, we're going to figure out whether or not this person is actually ready for the big leagues. Some of them are, some of them aren't. Some of them are so highly anticipated that they get out there and they just choke and after a season you never hear of them again. Now there's this one guy in the Minnesota Vikings that they've been talking about now uh, since the draft. His name is Kellen Mond. He was this quarterback at Texas A&M for four years. He was a quarterback as a freshman in college. And A&M was a pretty good school. So it's highly anticipated that this guy is going to be the replacement for Kirk Cousins. You know, that's to the chagrin of some of you, but we'll see what ends up happening. But this Kellen Mond is not the backup quarterback right now. He's not even listed on the active roster. He's on the practice squad. And that's not because he is not a good athlete. He's a great athlete. But the Vikings know that if they put him in before he is ready, he may ruin his own future and the Vikings' future. I mean, the Vikings do that fine on their own, but they don't need a guy that's this new guy that could potentially get there uh, to help them get there. And when it comes to the way that God has designed the church leadership, if someone is newly drafted onto God's team, they become a Christian, they need to be trained. They need to be discipled. They need to be sharpened. They need to be shepherded. They need to be equipped before they put on the pads and before they put on the jersey of church leadership, they need to be led themselves. And Paul puts it this way in verse 6. He must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Would you want any new believer in Christ to incur the same condemnation as the devil? To be rushed into an elder position too early would make shipwreck for them and for the church. When we look at the word elder overseer here, we aren't, uh, we aren't looking at age. We're looking at maturity. 
I've been in the ministry now, uh, vocational ministry, since 2009. And I have seen my fair share of people who have been Christians for 30 years. But they're no different in their growth from where they were 30 years ago when they first came to Christ. And further, I've seen some people that have become Christians and within a couple years they're leading churches. Think about new converts in China right now where the church is just exploding. Some of these guys are Christians for three, four months and they're leading churches. Of course, you mature quick when you have the government breathing down your neck and saying you can't meet as a church. For me, personally, I was a believer for 10 years before I led a church. When selecting leaders, we're looking for maturity. Why? Because when people are green in the faith and they are thrust into ministry, Paul says that they are prime for arrogance, which is the personal enemy of humility and being a servant leader. And if pride is the driving force of a church leader, Paul lays out the judgment, incurs the same condemnation as the devil. So let me ask you this. Does God take church leadership lightly? certainly doesn't seem like it. And again, the text forces us to come to the realization that not only do we have the obligation to appoint leaders who are mature, but we need to be the kind of people and we need to be the kind of church by which we are always looking for the next step of growth. Where am I right now in my faith and what is the next thing that I need to go toward in order to be at the next level uh, in my walk with Jesus. Maturity is a spectrum. It's not a destination. There's not going to come to a point when you're going to say, man, all right, now I'm finally a mature Christian. I have arrived and I'm done. Well, folks, if you're saying that, that means you're dead and you are in heaven, okay? We are always needing to grow. So choose leaders who are mature and maturing and pursue, pursue maturity in yourself as well. And fourth and finally, we need to appoint leaders who are well-respected in the community. And this is perhaps one of the most overlooked uh, qualifications in all of these, especially in today's contemporary context. We live right now in such a polarized culture. I mean, no one's getting along. Everyone is at each other. And it's easy to look at church leaders who are publicly contentious as virtuous, especially in areas that are not gospel issues. It seems like more and more pastors and church leaders are being praised for their ability to be rude, condescending, and confrontational instead of leaders who display the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We want leaders who will stick it to the man in regards to our pet political issues. But when we desire such leaders to lead with a bite... How does that look to the outside world? 
What do unbelievers say? How should the church be viewed? How, by how militant it is or by how the gospel has transformed our hearts and made us new? In our passage, Paul writes in verse 7, he says, Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he doesn't fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. So one of the requirements of a church leader is to be one who is viewed by the community at large as someone who is respectable. Someone that you can get behind. This doesn't mean that an overseer or an elder needs to compromise their faith. That's not allowed for any Christian. None of us are allowed to compromise our faith and the truths of, of Scripture. But the kind of men who are overseers ought to be one in which, again, that the world sees them and says, you know what, I really don't agree with them on X, Y, Z, an issue. But man, I'd really like talking to that person. And that person is just easy to get along with and very respectable. And I know it's harder to imagine in our polarized society, but what Paul is getting at here is that if someone in the community has an issue with an overseer of the church or an elder of the church, it shouldn't be because the guy's a jerk or because he's obnoxious online or he's not screaming at the empire or the ref during a child's basketball or baseball game or that he's berating the waitress because they got the order wrong when it came out from the kitchen but rather they are well thought of because of their character. How do they treat people over here on Union Street when you walk into the Crystal or Made of Mora or the gas station or whatever it is? We need to ask again, why is this important? Why does Paul say this? Verse 7, he, he explains, so he doesn't fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. What does that mean? It means for him to lose credibility. He, uh, it means that by his behavior and his character, he makes the church look bad. And when someone makes the church look bad, it makes Christ look bad. It demeans the beauty of Jesus, which is exactly what Satan wants and exactly what Paul is getting at here. And so this is also a warning. It's... Uh, the news is full of faithful pastors and elders who had legacies of faithfulness. And by one or two of their actions, fell into a heinous disrepute. It's exactly why Paul tells Timothy in chapter 4, verse 16, pay attention to your life and your teaching Persevere in these things, for in doing so, you'll save yourself and your hearers. We need leaders who display the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control of Christ. We need people in the church who willingly submit and, and, and follow such leadership. We need a congregation who are striving to be people of integrity in doctrine and pure in lifestyle and wise in their dealing with outsiders. Church leadership is incredibly important. Christ bought the church with the payment of his blood. And the things that Paul says we ought to be on the lookout for, it's a tall order. 
but so is the Christian life. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being led and directed. And when we look on and reflect on this passage, we of course need to be on the hunt for biblical leaders. But again, the pressing question is, how is your character being developed? Maybe you've had some stuff in your past that maybe you'd like to forget about. Well, that's in the past. How are you right now growing and living in a way that is full of integrity? How are you managing your home? How are you growing in maturity? How are you upstanding in the community? You might not like the answer that is currently true of you, but the good news of the gospel that saved you from your sins is the same good news and the same power that will empower you to be the kind of person that Paul is calling us to be here. Steve Jobs may not have been the world's best leader, but he changed the world, right? A world is not the same. The church has been tasked with something eternally more important than you having an iPhone in your pocket. We've been entrusted with the news that Jesus Christ has overcome sin, and he's overcome death in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So let's push toward a church structure, as well as individual members thereof, to reflect the hope that is found in Christ alone. Friends, let's pray, and let's move into that particular mindset. Let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. You are welcome to pass this message along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it in any way without written permission from Emmanuel Baptist Church. This message has been made available by the generous supporters of Emmanuel Baptist Church. For additional information about how you can partner with Emmanuel, please visit us at www.emmanuelmora.com. There you will find more free messages and links to ministry opportunities to help you grow in your faith. If you are watching on YouTube, please click the subscribe button to always receive the latest messages. Thanks again for listening. Emmanuel Baptist Church, Mora, Minnesota. Knowing Christ and making Him known.